Welcome to Machine Learning. Global, we talk about a book called Global Bargain Hunting. Um, this uh, was an interesting book because it talks about some of the trends that we're seeing in on a global scale. Um, the author states, starts off and says that 85% of the world's population produced uh, it combined 21% of the world's production of goods and services. That is incredible. Now, if we were to take that 85% of the world population, say 7 billion, and then say that 85% of that working population will be replaced by robots, then we could say that... Um, that 21% of the world's production of goods and services would be run by 85% of that population that produced that, um, those goods and services by robots and by AI and smart, uh, smart algorithms. In a 10-year period, the economies of Asia, Latin America, uh, economies grew three times the rate growth in the United States, encompassing China, Japan, India, Indonesia, South Korea, and Thailand. Um, if you look at the way artificial intelligence works, it is based on data models. So you create a model, and from that model, you uh, can draw inference from it. And in the... Uh, Countries of the South Asia, if they are drawing models that are um, very specific to certain features, then they're going to have certain outcomes. Um, so if the world runs on statistics, it's very important that the hypothesis, the null hypothesis, is proven uh, true and that the data is significant. It's not due to random choice our chance, and um, that the right questions are being asked and the right features are being provided for the data models. Um, otherwise, you could have a strong political bias that is controlling the data models that are, are uh, drawing, are for which the world is drawing conclusions from. And so this idea of of using efficiency as a way of control uh, seems like a bad idea. So again, uh, there needs to also be a, a good ideology and freedom it has to be a, a fundamental principle that governs our economies uh, in order to remain free and productive. Uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Thailand have relied on free market incentives in the last 20 years to produce economic miracles. Since 1978, China has recorded a 10% growth rate and lifted 170 million rural farmers out of poverty and created 120 million new jobs. And it's interesting because China uh, now, the real big uh, push is towards artificial intelligence uh, so a lot of the research and development in artificial intelligence in China 
is aimed at uh, producing uh, an increased jobs in that in that field of uh, applying artificial intelligence to increase automation uh, process process different service sectors and uh, uh, become leaders in innovation in artificial intelligence and that is largely because China uh, is very capitalistic and also the uh, technology from the West has been able to be learned and they're starting now not just to copy technology but to innovate in that realm but the direction of innovation will be uh will be yet to be determined and uh so that that's uh it the move from to manual labor to automation is now the big jump that China wants to uh, accomplish at the same time the United States is racing to position itself in the artificial intelligence machine learning uh, domain and so uh, there will be a lot of competition between these two countries. China's leadership understands that their survival depends on elimination of revolutionary uh, conditions and that's very good because the more free as society is, the more capable and productive they are. And as a result of that productivity and innovation, uh, that has a wealth multiplier or a uh, wealth leverage point. China's capitalism has beaten India's socialism hands down. Foreign investment is flowing in, state-owned businesses are being sold, and subsidiaries cut. And when I hear that, that... Uh, that's very promising i uh and this would be kind of a cooperative between the government chinese china's government and the capitalists but at the same time you have to uh just kind of take things on the surface level of what is being said here that china has capitalism and um and you might want to you they might call it the state enterprises, uh, you might call it uh, um, uh, cooperative governance control, but it's at, at its heart, it still has a large number of capitalists who are taking their money, investing in uh, growth, innovations, and producing uh, products and services. And so that uh, level of capitalism will create uh, freedom in China, and it will provide opportunities that have uh, never before been seen there. And so China's growth in that, in that sense is very promising. We, I like capitalism. Uh, America became great because of capitalism, uh, and that is the process of gifting, uh, innovating, contributing, providing services and, and products that people want letting the free market determine what uh products were best and uh and uh voting with their dollars chile market reform has been impressive as it as it adopts a free market policy privatization state owned enterprise moderate inflation improved democracy replace authoritative 
uh, authoritative obliarchy. That's a, a good uh, sign there in Chile. I like their economy. It, in Latin America, it's one of the most healthy uh, economies. Um, I think it had uh, low inflation. At the same time, uh, it has uh, positive growth. It has positive uh, uh, export, exports. Um, and the only thing that could be harming any of these Latin American countries is their tie to and influenced by communism. Uh, Russia, Iran, China, uh, they are all competing for Latin American interests and resources. The Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland have been successful in economic transition with uh, rapid growth and moderate inflation. And, um, and so those three economies uh, will see, you know, probably more hot in investment. Uh, so as foreign investment flows into the countries, that will heat up their economies, create more jobs. Um, at the same time, uh, there will be more output. And as that output grows, uh, there's a wealth multiplier effect there. The global demographic trend is decreasing the size of the U.S. consumer market relative to the rest of the world. Each U.S. citizen has about $5,000 purchasing power per year. And um, if you look at that, that means that the world is getting more wealthy uh, and so we, the United States citizen maintains a $5,000 purchasing power per year. But at the same time, these other countries are increasing in their purchasing power also. In the mid-1990s, U.S. institutional investor held close to uh, 95% of their equity funds in domestic so stock. In 1997, the greater majority of large institutional investors indicated their goal of increasing their portfolio share of non-U.S. stock to 10% or, or higher. So that's interesting because, okay, so if you said that 95% was held in domestic stock in the, the mid-1990s, then they say, okay, we want to go 10% or even higher. That's only a 5% increase in the uh, foreign stock or non-U.S. stock. Uh, and but they do put the the caveat that says or higher, so there's a shifting towards more global uh, stock portfolios. Free markets are far more efficient than government control in promoting growth. Amen. Uh, free markets when free markets govern the growth of the economy, then you have a healthy system. Uh, Otherwise, the system becomes uh, it becomes uh, it becomes stagnant. And uh, um, I'm trying to think of the term, but uh, you it you don't have you don't have uh, disruption. And but the thing that's interesting is this disruption that technology is providing. It's creating lots of new ownership. As companies uh, innovate, get the bigger, um, they then uh, are bought by bigger companies 
and they capitalize on that disruption. By mid-1990s, Chinese companies signed approximately 6,000 technology transfer agreements with developed nations worth $50 billion. <clears throat> so that's uh, China's is now getting an infusion of technology which will help grow their country. Uh, debt financing is more likely to be in the form of long-term bonds than short-term borrowing. Now, I would say that that one is not necessarily true today because there is a lot of demand for short-term borrowing as evidenced by the yield gap spread. Uh, so the short-term bonds and the long-term bond gap on the yield is narrowing, which means that uh, investors are not wanting to uh, commit their money for as long, and they're willing to uh, take the short-term bond. Emerging markets have experienced a tenfold increase in direct foreign investment since the 1990s. So as uh, outsourcing, uh, globalization began to spread, uh, moving manufacturing was pushed out of the United States. There were um, incentives to lower labor costs. Uh, and so companies chose to have products manufactured overseas. And that led to uh, emerging markets where now uh, hot money was flowing into those markets, and um, while there while there was rapid growth, uh, th those markets continued to receive uh, investments. By the nineteen ninety six, the worldwide direct foreign investment reached five hundred billion. Emerging markets take a long time to reach the developed countries' level of capitalization. We do not expect Russia to reverse their economic reforms and return to planned economic systems. Uh, that's great. As long as they're not uh, becoming uh, imperialistic uh, in terms of pushing into Europe. But not, if, they're not, if they're not going to reverse economic reforms, that means that Russia will also experience uh, increased wealth as they begin to move into open markets and free market systems. Today, investors rely on self-interest of the developing countries to help guarantee returns. In 1994, Mexico's violent political development forced the withdrawal of foreign short-term capital. Large trade deficits drove the peso downward as its freefall against the dollar. Interest rates soared and Mexico uh, fell into a recession. U.S. investors sold Mexican stock in peso and converted them into dollars. Pesos converted into few dollars. The Mexican stock market lost about 70% of its value in U.S. dollar terms from 1994 to 95. In China, 1992, Happy Flying, a consumer electronics company, traded at more than 1,000 times previous year's earnings. Most investors believe that the Chinese economy would take off and that the earnings of happy flying would rise like a rocket as a result of equipping 
1.2 billion consumers with TVs and VCRs. This vision justified their belief and the investors around the world would pay even higher prices. It's always difficult to know when things are going to impact the consumer and uh, at what rate um, that that impact will occur. I, I look back on the iPhone and its adoption when it, you know, when before iPhone came out, you had BlackBerry and people and businessmen were uh, very familiar with uh, uh, using the BlackBerry and the stylus uh, to be able to select items and navigate, read their emails, um, run applications. And you could even write uh, code. Developers could write applications for the BlackBerry using Code Warrior. And, uh, and so a lot of businessmen had Blackberries and they used that for their communication. And then came the iPhone and it was interesting because I, when I looked at that, I wasn't thinking about how Apple's strategy would work and how the iPhone would become like the iPod in that um, it would uh, be rapidly used by um, a lot of the consumers and that Mar Apple would maintain a large um, profit margin and then they would use that large profit margin to uh, increase advertisement and encourage developers to develop for the iPhone. And as a result, uh, it was very, it, it's been absolutely amazing uh, the last 20 years, or so if it came out in 95, uh, maybe 15 years, probably 15 years of usage of, and as we've seen each generation of iPhone, how much of a uh, barrier that Apple has been able to maintain with its uh, iPhone and, and, um, and the impact on the world that this device has had. <clears throat> especially when you consider today that there are so many smart devices on the market. There's uh, uh, from LG to Samsung, uh, very, very uh, uh, competitive devices, yet people are still buying iPhones. The Chinese government controls over initial public offerings, help drive share prices, Upward, the average IPO profit was 150%. Some investment bankers would keep a large block of securities off the market when the IPO started trading, making the supply tight and the price higher. A considerable portion was sold to corporate managers, government officials, and other people of connections. They were told to hold on and sell at even higher prices. <clears throat> Tight control of the Chinese stock market gave investors a false sense of security, stated, With socialism, we have the tools to prevent the stock market from booming and crashing. Uh, that's not true. If, if that were true, then what that means is that those governments would have to either uh, devalue, devalue their currency by inflation or they would have to buy back their currency to strengthen it. 
and at some point that uh, uh, the buying and selling would be too great of a load for, even for the governments and uh, there would be a boom or a crash. So manipulation of, of the stock market is not possible. 2008, the Chinese stock market had dropped 50% plus percent from the previous years. In 1992, the Shanghai stock market dropped 75%. Happy Flying dropped from 14.77 to 2.6 won. A second surge and bubble pop caused investors to lose money borrowing from friends and family. In 1987, the Taiwan stock market index dropped almost 80% in less than nine months, wiping out $184 billion of investor wealth.